many of us are familiar with the song Amazing Grace. But I wonder how many of us know the background behind the life of the writer of the hymn, John Newton. Before Newton was known for writing beautiful hymns, he was a captain of slave ships where hatred, murder, and ridicule were the norm. Ushering men and women, both young and old, in chains like cattle, stacking them inside the cabins of the ship without care or caution, beating, prodding, abusing, misusing, and even killing those who fought back. One night, Newton woke to a terrible storm and found his crew frantically pumping water from the ship that's overwhelmed by crashing winds and mighty waves. Newton rushed rushes to the bow of this ship and he's trying to steer through the storm and as he's trying to do this he begins to pray and in that moment he remembered Jesus' death that which he heard as a child a death for sins not his own he remembered for the sake it was for the sake of those who should put their trust in him and in that moment He trusted Christ for his salvation. He never looked back. Radical transformation by the grace of God. How? Well, Newton clearly saw in that moment the heinousness of his sin. He saw his anger and brutality. And he said this, the slave trade is now a business at which my heart now shudders. He then spent the rest of his life loving others, loving and encouraging those in the church and discipling younger men. His chains were gone, and seeing the beauty of Christ by the power of the Spirit, he was transformed. He was changed. He pursued a love for the broken, the destitute, and the weary. He fought for the freeing of the slaves and the complete destruction of the Atlantic slave trade until his dying days. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like John Newton. Now I want us to see that the love of Christ poured out for sinners transforms his enemies by faith and makes them his prized possession. Those who love rather than hate. And so what we're going to see is that the entire Bible is clear. That the sixth commandment is not only a physical offense, but is an internal offense from our hearts. It's found in anger. It's found in hatred and insult. However, the Lord Jesus fulfilled the sixth commandment in his living and in his dying that we might put the death murder in our hearts and walk in newness of life, loving others without reservation and hesitation forever and ever. And so with those thoughts in your minds this morning, turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. And if you're using one of the Bibles under the chairs, you can find our passage on page 61. And while you turn there, feel free to look at your outline, and you're going to notice that there are three main points we're working through this morning. Number one, the commandment given. Number two, the commandment fulfilled. And number three, the commandment applied. And so first, number one, the commandment given. So follow along with me as I read in Exodus 
20, verse 13. Here it is. You shall not murder. You shall not murder. As we heard last week, the two tables of the law are not at odds, right? But they're built upon one another like brick and mortar for a house. Because the second table, those commandments, commandments 5 through 10, help us assess how we are to love those who have been made in the image of God. Now, as we look at the content of the command this morning, there are two questions that I would like for us to investigate. So the first question is, what is included within the command to not murder? And the second question is, why is murder so egregious to God? So first, what exactly is included in this command? Well, I think there are two prohibitions that are included within this idea. Number one, it's a prohibition against harming others to the point of death. And number two, it's a prohibition against taking one's own life. And so the heinous acts of homicide, genocide, abortions, euthanasia, they all boil down to one idea. It's the taking of innocent life. And in our second prohibition, the idea of taking one's own life, of course, that is suicide. Now, as we lay the foundation for the command, we must understand one clear principle that oversees all of this. God hates murder. He hates it. And the Bible doesn't assume this reality, but actually demonstrates it. So, for instance, Numbers 35 speaks of taking an innocent life. It says in Numbers 35, verse 16, if he struck him down with an iron object so that he died, he's a murderer. Verse 17, if he struck him down with a stone tool to cause death, he's a murderer. Verse 18, if he struck him down with a wooden tool, he's a murderer. Verse 20, if he pushed him out of hatred to his death, he is a murderer. Now notice the repetition. If he strikes with an object so that the person dies, the man's a murderer. It's repeated nine times in five verses. And so the audience is left, and we are left without any question. The man who kills is an enactor of bloodshed. So what's God's just judgment on the murderer? Well, verse 21 helps us understand exactly what that is. It says, the avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death. The murderer is met with the just punishment for his actions, death. And so here we go. God hates murder. Why? Why is this sin so egregious to the Lord? I mean, right, we have a gut reaction, any and all of us, when we hear of murder or suicide or abortion. But why does God hate this sin? Why? Well, just think back to Noah's day. Right after the flood, Noah is blessed. He comes out of the ark. All things are good for the family, and the Lord gives instructions to them pertaining to food. And in Genesis 9, God says this to Noah and his family. You shall not eat flesh with its life. That is, its blood. 
And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Listen to this. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? Because God made man in his own image. Do you hear why murder is so wicked? It's because men and women have been created in the image and likeness of God. Just remember how Moses puts this in Genesis 1.27. He says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we can't miss this. According to God himself, all people have inherent worth, dignity, and value. Every single one of them. They've been made to represent the king of all the universe, to reflect his likeness and to multiply that the whole earth would be filled with the glory of God. Now we need to be very clear. We stand for honoring life Because ultimately, murder diminishes who God is. It robs and diminishes the glory, the magnification of God and His purposes. So I think this is helpful for us to realize that the reason why we stand for honoring life and why we are broken over the reality of murder in the world isn't because the person who died was pretty or because the baby was cute. It isn't because they have their whole life in front of them. It isn't because of who they could have been. It isn't even because they deserve more representation. Now all that may well be, all that may be well and true. But at the very heart of this command, and the reason why this sin is so irreprehensible to God, is that these people have been made in God's image. Every life is precious. Whether it be the unborn child, or the disease-ridden woman, or the physically impaired, or the elderly man with dementia staring in the face of death, all men and women have intrinsic value. And the implicit call to this command is to honor life rather than destroy it. It's to honor and protect and guard that which God has created in his image. So God's law is abundantly clear for us. God's people do not murder. It's an abomination to the Lord. Life is precious to God. Therefore, life should be precious to his people. We should love and treasure that which God has given. But as we'll see, The Old Testament displays how the people of God absolutely fail to protect life. In fact, what do they do? They murder the innocent. And so to see the the heinousness of murder, we must look at, A, the failure to keep the command, and seen in the life of Cain, and then pertaining to Israel. And so I want to first look at Cain. So flip with me over to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4, and we're going to be starting in verse 3. And as you turn there, we'll see that the offspring of Adam and Eve, like these are the kids, they're meant to reflect God's glory just as Adam and Eve were. 
to know him, to enjoy him, to be fruitful and multiply. And we find Cain subtracting an image bearer, his own brother, from the face of the earth. Talk about sin problems. This is dire. So just look with me at Genesis chapter 4 as we start in verse 3. It says, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offspring, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now just look with me at Cain's motivation for murder in verse 5. It says, Cain was very angry and his face fell. But why is Cain angry? Well, it says it just in the previous two verses. It's because God accepted Abel's offering rather than Cain's. Abel brought the best of the best of the Lord. And what does it say? Cain brought a sacrifice. And so in herein lies the cycle of Cain's attitudes leading to murder. It's exactly what we hear in James chapter 1, verses 14 through 15. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Sin crouched at the door of Cain's heart. And he didn't rule over it, did he? No, his anger leads to murder. Verse 8, Cain rose up against his own brother, Abel, and killed him. He murdered his own brother, I mean, just think about this with me. They grew up together. They played with the same toys. They probably slept in the exact same room. They enjoyed every meal together. And then what do you see? Cain says, hey, Abel, come on over here. And he kills his own brother. We need not get over the heinousness of what takes place in Genesis 4. Cain murdered Abel. Pastor and author R. Kent Hughes comments on this one verse, and he writes, Why did Cain kill Abel? 
Was it because he hated Abel? Yes, but also no. You see, Cain murdered out of hatred for God. Murder is an act of hatred toward God for making or accepting another who offends us or troubles us or is favored with gifts and honors we do not have or stands in our way of getting them. So we see that murder here actually highlights a deeper problem that Cain has. And you see it in the interaction that Cain has with God. Cain hates God. He's offended. He's not favored. Therefore, his anger leads to bloodshed, even his own brother. Without batting an eyelash, Cain murders, kills, bludgeons his own love and brother. So God's pronouncement on Cain is clear. It's the right reaction to sin. He curses him. And Cain walks away from the presence of God. Notice, east of Eden, following the same course as Adam and Eve are sent out, further and further away from God's holy presence. And so Cain fails to keep the sixth commandment. Horrific story. And sadly, the rest of the Old Testament doesn't paint any better of a picture for us. The same old story, time and time again, over and over again, anger, rage, bitterness, envy, leading to more and more bloodshed. And yet we see in Acts 2 an even greater display of wickedness, an even greater, more heinous remark about the people of Israel. And so I would love for you to turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Got to see it. And as you're turning there, let me give just us a bit of context here. Jesus has ascended to the throne of God. The apostles have been sent and the Holy Spirit has been poured out on them to do glorious work for God's good name. And on that very day, Peter began preaching to the people of Israel. And so in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 22, Peter declares some of the most shocking declarations towards these people. So just listen to what he says in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, verse 23, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Now listen to this. You crucified and killed. By the hands of lawless men, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now, did you catch what Peter said in verse 23? Who crucified and killed Jesus? It's the people of Israel. He says, you killed the man. You murdered Jesus. They put him to death. Now just think about this for a moment. The very Messiah that the Jews longed for, in fact, they continue to long for, it says that they murdered him. Right after three years, the religious leaders who were just dying to get their hands on him, they finally accomplish what they sought to do. Listen to the proof. They didn't murder on a whim. No, this was premeditated, just like Cain. Matthew 26, 4. And they, the religious leaders, plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. 
Luke 22, 2, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him, Jesus, to death. John 7, 1, the Jews were seeking to kill him. They sought to kill Jesus. And Peter is clear. They crucified and killed him. They failed to keep the sixth commandment. That which they loved, the law of God, they do not keep. Now, Israel fails to keep, keep the sixth commandment time and time again. It's all over the place. But it would be wrong for us to breathe a sigh of relief this morning and say, Phew, I haven't killed anybody lately, so I get a pass this week at church. This one doesn't apply to me. Well, the Heidelberg Catechism tells us that there's more to the sixth commandment than just physical murder. Listen to what it says. What does God require in the sixth commandment? Answer. I am not to dishonor, hate, injure, or kill my neighbor by thoughts or by words or even gestures. Listen to this one. This one even hurts even more. And much less by my deeds, whether personally or through another. And so here's a question. Where's this guy getting this information? Is he just chucking it out there to make it applicable to us? No, he gets it from Jesus himself. And so Jesus shows us the heart of the sixth commandment as he fulfills it in both his teaching and in his dying. So first, we're going to see Jesus' teaching on murder. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 22. You may be noticing that in the last few weeks, we've been traveling to Matthew 5 quite a bit. And that's for a purpose, because Jesus literally uses the Ten Commandments as his launching pad to show that he's come to fulfill the law and not to abolish it. He's the author and keeper of the command and law of God. Why? He is God. He is all authority. And so we're, we're going to be in Matthew 5, starting in verses 21 through 22. And just listen to what Jesus says here. He says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool! will be liable to the hells, to the hell of fire. So Jesus recalls to his Jewish audience the sixth commandment, right? You hear it in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old. They knew the command, right? That's talking about the Ten Commandments. It's talking about verse 13 of Exodus 20. But look at the contrast that Jesus creates in verse 22. But I say to you, as the author of the law, the one who fulfills it, everyone who is angry... Just pause. Everyone who is angry. We need to hear this. Everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. Everyone who insults his brother, everyone who calls another person a fool, he says is liable to hell. That's intense language. 
But notice the, con- con- the connection that Jesus is making here. He isn't making a distinction between murder and anger, hate, and insult. No, he's saying if you're filled with anger, it's no different than killing someone physically. No difference. So Jesus isn't reconfiguring the intention of the sixth commandment here from Exodus 20. No, he's giving a simple explanation of the true intent of the very law of God. You know, when I was in youth group as a little kid, uh, we were all gathered around by this one woman who was going to give her testimony. And she sat us down, and I remember sitting like in um, crisscross, applesauce, whatever. And then she says, you know, kids, in my house, it was rough growing up. Every single commandment was broken. All Ten Commandments completely broken in my house. And then she says, she leans in, and she goes, even murder. And as you can imagine, with all these kids on the carpet, my, my mind was blown. I was like, what? Even murder? No way. And you know, the reality is, is as I've gotten older, that story has clearly stuck in my brain. I remember exactly where I was. I remember exactly who was there. And as I'm getting older, I start to think about what she said. And I've said to myself time and time again, wait a second. That's my story too. Every single commandment has been broken in my home. Every single commandment has been broken in my little heart. I have murdered people in my heart. Clowney sums it up well. He says, we are all murderers in the sense that we have failed to love as we ought. There is no one who has not thought, you idiot, about someone. Therefore, we all deserve the judgment that Jesus repeats three times in Matthew 5. We deserve death. We deserve hell. No one's getting out scot-free here. Now, some of you may be thinking, isn't that a bit overkill? No, it's exactly what Jesus is getting at. You see, he's just pressing his finger on all our hearts, saying, this is where your heart wanders. This is how you murder. You don't get off here because you never beat a man to death. No, your heart goes here. John Calvin writes, for although it is the hand that commits physical murder, the heart nevertheless conceives the deed when tarnished by anger and hatred. So like Cain, our hearts are prone to turn from anger to desire for greater injury, a desire to devalue the person who has been made in the image and likeness of God because hatred is only deep-seated anger. Now, we may not lash out in physical violence, right? I'm assuming that most of us have probably not murdered someone Physically. But anger most certainly dwells in the belly of our hearts, doesn't it? The way we avoid others. The way that we utilize the silent treatment. The way that we purposefully segregate someone from the group. The way that we speak lies about character. It all stems from our hearts. And out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth, the mind, and the body certainly speaks. Now let me 
pause here for a moment and ask a few serious questions that I've been asking my own heart and mind this past week. How prevalent is anger in your heart? Is there a specific circumstance where you're withholding grace from someone even now? Are you easily frustrated? Yes, that's silent anger. That one I don't like much. Are you prone to either internally or externally call someone an idiot? Do you look to tear down other people's reputations or whisper slight criticisms to elevate your own prowess, your own name, your own position in your own company or in the church? Can you feel your blood boil internally? You haven't expressed it verbally, but man, you feel your blood boil. When the husband who drops his clothes on the floor rather than in the laundry basket. When the pastor who forgets to email you back. The music team who didn't take my song requests. The parent who won't take their child out of the sanctuary so I can worship God in peace. The church attendee who confronted me on my sin. Now, if we take the time to assess our hearts and motivations, we quickly realize that Israel isn't the only one who failed to keep the sixth commandment. We have failed. We have not kept God's law perfectly. So what does that mean? That means we need a rescuer, doesn't it? We need a rescuer for our souls. One who is perfect in every regard, who sins not and praise God, the Lord Jesus is his name. So Jesus not only identifies the depths of the disease of our hearts, but he produces the cure. He produces himself as our substitute to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. So in his dying, we see that he is that glorious, perfect substitute for those who are incapable of keeping the law of God. Jesus keeps the sixth commandment by not reviling his enemies, but loving his enemies. Now, many of us have read the accounts of Jesus' last days on earth, but I want to draw our attention specifically to the kangaroo court that ensued, right? The, the one with Barabbas, this legitimate criminal, and Jesus, the God-man, in Matthew 27. And so you may remember that Pilate, he gives the crowd the choice. He says, who do you want to release? Barabbas or this guy, Jesus? And Matthew 27, 20 says, the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. And so the crowd leans with the chief priests and elders. They listen, and they decide in verse 21, we want Barabbas to be freed. The criminal, we'll bring him out. So then Pilate grants them the, the request and asks what the crowd would like them to do with Jesus, and what do they shout in unison? They say, let him be crucified. Let the God-man, the Messiah, be murdered. Now, do you know what Jesus said in response to the crowd? Nothing. Do you know what Jesus did? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. How about when he was betrayed by Judas in Matthew 26? 
Not one evil word or deed came from Jesus. Not one word. How about when the Romans mocked and scorched him? He opened not his mouth. He raised not his fist. I mean, just think about the reality of what's happening here. Right? With one blink of Jesus' almighty eye, he could have wiped out the entire battalion. One blink of his glorious eye. But no. He spoke not. He acted not. And that's not all. He was hung on the cross. And he endured the holy wrath of God in the place of sinners. In the place of murderers, both internally and externally. And as he hung on that cross, Luke 23, 34 records the words that Jesus uttered in the face of his scoffers and murderers. Do you remember what he said? He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Are you kidding? The innocent being put to death, and he says, forgive them? 1 Peter 2, 22-25 says, He, Jesus, committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him, to God, who judges justly. He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree. For what purpose? That we might die to sin And live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. So when Jesus was reviled, when he suffered, he did not revile, he did not threaten. No sin, no wicked anger, no ungodly tongue. No, he endured perfectly. He entrusted himself to the one who has the last word. He bore our sins in his body, that in his dying he covers a multitude of sins. You and me have been covered by the blood of Christ. Heinous, anger-filled, envious, vengeful, slanderous, malicious, murderous sins atoned for in full by the good shepherd who lays down his precious life, life for his sheep. Oh, that is great news for us. And for what purpose? Listen to verse 24. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness, live to godliness, holy conduct, pursuing love rather than deep-seated hatred for others. Now that's love, brothers and sisters. That is real, lasting love. Undiminished, unwavering, unfathomable, unquenchable, indescribable, wondrous love. Don't get over that. Romans 5, 6 through 8 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Because one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, still enemies, Christ died for us. No hate, only love poured out for lost sheep. 
So by Christ's very death, payment is made for all my sin. Every time I murder in my heart and with my mouth, it's been paid for in full. He didn't look to preserve his life, but he laid it down for the sake of others. And so because Jesus paid the debt of his church, all believers can now, by the power of the Spirit, they can turn from hate, turn from anger, turn from murder, and pursue a godly love for others. It's only by grace that we even have the ability to do it. So now we lay our lives down for the good of his church. Which leads us to point three, the commandment applied, where we see A, a weighty warning, and B, oh, a glorious command. And so turn with me to 1 John. 1 John chapter 3. We're going to begin reading in verse 11 here in a moment. First John chapter 3, starting in verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And so A, a weighty warning. John is making a strong and clear warning for his reader and for us here this morning. And we can't miss it. We can't take this lightly. John begins in verse 11 by giving a clear call for those who have heard from the beginning, those who are believers, that we should love one another. That's brothers and sisters, Christians, loving one another, one another, brothers and sisters. But what should we not be like, according to John? We should not be like Cain. Genesis 4, the one who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Do you see the contrast that John's building? The Christian loves his brother and sister. In contrast, Cain hated his brother. Don't be like Cain. He was of the evil one. He wasn't a child of God. No, he was a hater of God. He's an enemy of God. He's actually a child of Satan. That's what it says in verse 10. John's saying Satan is and was Cain's father. He's, he's saying, he's pleading to these believers, that's not your father. No, God's your father. Therefore, you love one another. So John continues the logic in verses 14 through 15. He says, we, Christians, know that we have passed out of death into life. How do we know that we have new life? That we've passed out of death into life? Because we love the brothers. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murder, murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So heed the warning in the scriptures this morning. If you hate rather than love, John's clear. You aren't one of God's children. It's staggering but true. Why is that? 
Because love is a mark of every single believer. The very fact that we love one another is a litmus test that we actually have new saving faith in Christ alone. God is day by day whittling out anger, murder, and hate from amongst the hearts of his people. It's serious. A pastor once said, if your faith in Christ leaves you unchanged, you don't have saving faith. It's not perfection, but a new progressive direction of thought and affections and behavior, which is the fruit that shows that your faith is alive. There is no fruit without the root. And so if you profess faith in Jesus Christ and do not love the brothers and sisters inside this church, then there is real cause to be concerned. I don't say this lightly, but the Bible is most certainly clear. No murderer, no hater of his brother and sister will inherit the kingdom of God. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying this morning. I am not saying that you can lose your salvation. No, God will preserve his people to the end. But John is telling us that the product of a transformed heart is a heart that contagiously, deliberately, and progressively pours forth love for one another. No, we aren't perfect. I can attest to that. Yes, we still get frustrated. Once again, I can attest to that. But there should be a progressive transformation in the way that we love one another. That should be taking place. And so the question that I would love to ask and must ask this morning is this. Is this true of us here at Proclamation? Do we love one another as God has called us to in his word? I pray that that is the case. But also I pray that we excel still more, that we do not get complacent in our loving, but that we would continue to look to love the body of Christ. So John's warning is clear. We aren't to be like Cain. We are not to be like those who are children of Satan. And if we are, then we should be rightly alarmed. It's terrifying. We're to follow God's commands. We love and we do not murder. And that's exactly what John says as he heralds a glorious command of love for his people to pursue. He doesn't leave us hanging. There's not this warning and then just, okay. No, there's a glorious command for the people of God. Look at verses 16 through 18 with me. John writes this. By this we know love. That he... Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So how do we know what love is? How do we know? What is the anchor for the Christian to pursue love? Oh, it's looking to Jesus. 
That's what we see. We look to the one who laid down his life for his enemies. And here's, here lies the command, right? Because of what Christ has done in sacrificially loving and dying for his people, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We ought to lay down our lives for the very same people that Christ died for. Verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Do you hear that language? It's real. It's raw. It's impactful, active, sacrificial love for others, for one another. Why? Because we follow the example of our Redeemer. That's what we do. Now, first, if you have not yet put your faith in Christ, I ask you to just listen to John's beautiful words in chapter 3, verse 1. We do not want you just to be working, loving, loving, trying to love, 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 to earn God's favor. No. I want you to see chapter 3, verse 1. John writes this. See, behold, what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. That love is available to you. The Lord has done a marvelous work in the place of sinners. He makes his enemies his children. And you can't manufacture that kind of love. That's grace that's lavish, poured out on sinners like me and you. And so we plead with you this morning. If you do not know Christ, that you put your faith in him, the sinless Savior who lived the life that we could never live, who died the death that sinners deserve to die, and he rose from the dead on the third day, that you, even you, this very day, could be made a child of the King by the Spirit of God. We know he's able that you might have reconciliation with the Lord forever and ever. So we plead that you trust in him that you might have life forever. And you, dear believer, Christ's glorious example of love should inflame our active pursuit of love for his people. And so just as we saw with John Newton, we're to consider what Christ has done on our behalf and to pursue love rather than murder, slander, hate, envy, and insult. Out of a love for Christ, we then love the body. But what does it look like practically to love one another? What does it look like to be sacrificially, actively loving those in the church? It looks like praying for one another. Praying not only for physical issues, but even more importantly, praying for each other's holiness. That we'd remain faithful. That God would keep us. That God would continue to be working. That we'd be steadfast and mobilized, grounded on the gospel. And that we'd be full of joy as we dutifully delight in what God has called us to do. It looks like not only communing at church on Sunday, but living together. Getting together for meals, coffee, playdates, investing in the daily well-being of the saints. Building Godly relationships. It looks like sacrificing your time and energies to chat with those that you find really difficult to talk to at church. We all have got those. That person's hard. I'm going to go around the other side of the sanctuary. No. Loving, caring, 
you may have nothing in common, but actively engaging with one another to promote love and care for the well-being of the saints. It looks like asking very difficult questions that go beyond the weather and the big game on Sunday afternoon. Right? In what ways has God been working in you in the last six months? Other questions. How's your joy in the Lord? What have you been reading in God's word? What do you think of the sermon on Sunday? How are you going to apply those truths to your heart richly that you would grow and excel still more in the faith? It looks like weeping with those who weep. It looks like rejoicing with those who rejoice and pointing one another to the cross of our risen Lord in every single opportunity, knowing that we have nothing better to talk about. Weather's great, but Jesus is even better. Right? This is hard work. And I'm not standing up here saying, I have done this all well. No, this is hard, rigorous, sacrificial, initiating kind of love that we aren't typically prone to. But here is the beauty of what we've seen, is that by the power of God's Spirit, because of what Christ has accomplished, putting to death our sin, past, present, and future, we now freely and joyfully can pursue love for one another. It's hard, rigorous work that God actually has provided the promise that you can love one another in the church well. And so, brothers and sisters, here is my charge to us. Let us be those who love. First, a love for the Lord Jesus, for who he is in and of himself. And then from that, that we would be inflamed with a desire to love one another to the glory of God. Oh, may we be a people who are stirred and inflamed by Christ's work of love on the cross for us, that we might heartily pursue a love for others without hesitation or reservation forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for sharp rebuke and warning from your scriptures. We thank you for joyous and wondrous news in the gospel. God, we pray that our chief desire would be to know and enjoy you, that we would have a love for you that supersedes all else, and that of our love for you, that we would be propelled and inflamed to love one another. God, we ask that you give us mercy and grace as we do this. We ask that you would forgive us when we stumble and fall. God, we know that you will keep your people to the end. And so we ask that you would continue to be faithful to what you have tasked. And we pray all this that we'd be conformed to the image of your good and perfect son, the Lord Jesus. And it's in his wondrous name we pray. Amen.